This is the Drummer's Resource Podcast, session 329, and you're listening to The Daniel Glass Show, only on Drummer's Resource. This is it, right here. Uh-huh. Then you gotta add some of the little tricks. Ah, ah, you'll be swinging. Uh-huh. Right. It's The Daniel Glass Show on Drummer's Resource, offering a deeper look into Daniel's unique take on music, drumming, and life. Philosophy, motivation, musical deconstructions, and conversations with influential voices in the music industry. Hey everybody, Daniel Glass here. Welcome back to the Daniel Glass Show on the Drummer's Resource Podcasting Network. Hope you're all doing great today. I am about to jump into uh, a follow-up to to the last show. It's a two-parter. We are talking about the life, the music, the drumming, and the influence of the great Earl Palmer. And last time we spent a lot of time talking about his roots in New Orleans, where he came from, how he utilized New Orleans street beats in what he was playing, how he took those and morphed them into, and things like shuffles and 12-8 beats, into more mainstream rock and roll drumming. He was one of the first guys to use things like backbeats. Uh, consistently through a song, straight eighth grooves, 16th note fills, crashes on beat one, uh, more fancy um, variations in the bass drum. Just a lot of the pioneering elements of rock and roll that, you know, we sit down, when we sit down in front of a drum set today, we just truly take for granted. So if you want more uh, about the early years of Earl Palmer, the, those years are 1949 to 1957, uh, go back and check out the last episode. Um, in this session, we're going to jump into uh, the later years, well, not even the later years, sort of the mid-years of Earl's career, uh, 1957, and that period that began when he moved to Los Angeles. Um, we're going to talk about that, and we're going to take it up to 1971. And of course, Earl continued very actively through the 1970s and 80s, um, and was still playing uh, all the way until he passed away in 2008. When I um, met him, initially he was working at a place called Charlie O's up in North Hollywood uh, every Tuesday night with his jazz trio. So I got to see him play jazz. We're going to talk about Earl's jazz drumming a little bit in this segment, which we didn't really get to last week. Um, so, um, yeah, uh, that, you know, that that's, that's what we're going to get into. Uh, so... Let's start in 1957, and we said that that was sort of a crucial period. Earl had been working with quite a few labels that were based in Los Angeles that were putting out black rhythm and blues music. But as we had said last week, even though Earl was based in New Orleans, all those musicians in the recording studio, um, J&M Recording, um, that, that was all based in the city of New Orleans. There was no interest, at least from any record labels. There was certainly interest from the black population, because that's where the music came out of. But, um, you know, because of the nature of the South at that time and uh, segregation and racism and all that, um, it wasn't anything that uh, any sort of upstanding record label was interested in in putting out. Indeed, rock and roll in general was something that was considered uh, black music, was considered uh, youth music. Very similar, you know, if you think about rock in the 1950s, it's similar to what punk rock was in the 70s or underground hip-hop in the late 70s or, uh, you know, underground death metal. Um, All of these styles that today are now mainstream uh, were, you know, if you were, say, a punk rocker in... 1977, and you went out with a mohawk and piercings and, uh, you know, shredded up shirt and all that stuff, you, you would risk getting your ass beat. You know, today, uh, being a punk rocker is a fashion statement, um, but it really, uh, you really took your life in your hands by representing that that's what you were about in 1976. And similarly, in the mid-50s, rock and roll was very controversial. It was very, um, parents were talking about it being the devil's music and the N-word music, et cetera, et cetera, that they're, they're, upstanding children were going to uh, be corrupted. You know, pretty much the same things that parents say at every stage along the way about whatever their kids happen to be listening to. And you could trace that all the way back to the beginning of time. I mean, there's talk about how, um, you know, waltzes in the 1700s were going to corrupt the youth and that was it and it was all over. So uh, it's, it's a common story. Anyway, 1957, we'll pick up the story. Earl Palmer, uh, 
is working with so many labels out in Los Angeles. And these labels include famous labels like Specialty, who released a lot of those early Little Richard records, among others, Modern Records, Aladdin Records, Rendezvous Records. They, these were these labels were all based in Los Angeles, and they were um, some of them were black owned. Um, it was a more slightly more liberal environment on the West Coast. A lot of African Americans had left the South after World War II. Um, to get well, or during World War II, to get jobs in some of these northern industrial centers like uh, Detroit, Cleveland, Philadelphia, um, and uh, and of course uh, Chicago, but but also they went out west to both the Bay Area, but particularly Los Angeles because of the aerospace industry that was building you know planes and ships and bombs and bullets for the war in Japan or the war against Japan, I should say, the Pacific Theater. And all of that ran out of the West Coast. So there were, you know, because so many men had gone overseas, there were jobs available. And because the military at that time was still segregated, African-Americans and women uh, were some of the people that uh, jumped in and took those jobs that were, you know, part of the war effort. And so, especially for black people, it was an opportunity to move up in the world. And of course, they brought the blues music that they loved with them from the South or their love of that music, scenes started to crop up. You had, um, you know, in South Central Los Angeles, uh, which is the black community, um, you'd already had an influx of, of jazz there, uh, a hot scene of jazz during the bebop era. Um, and therefore, rhythm and blues and, uh, and then, you know, early rock and roll, these, these kinds of music followed suit. So these small labels in around 1957 were putting out rock and roll before it really got totally mainstream. And so Earl goes out to the West Coast and starts working for these labels. And um, part of the reason they wanted him to come out, first of all, for him, the money was better. Secondly, um, as I explained in the last session, his um, creative input that he had brought with the Dave Bartholomew band at J&M was actually finally uh, something that was an asset and, you know, today, again, we think of the studio musician as coming up with a cool part or introducing things into the mix and being sort of included in the creative process often. Um, this was a relatively new thing. And so Earl was rewarded for these this particular skill set that was very uh, unique to him. And that was another reason why he went out. A third reason why he went out is that he was in love with a white woman. And he had been married already once um, to a black woman, had four children. Uh, in New Orleans, but that marriage had ended. He was in love with a white woman, she with him, uh, but there was absolutely no way that could, they could even really be public about their relationship, let alone get married or raise a family or any of those things. So, um, you know, I remember reading the book. This is a really tough situation for him, and it's a big reason why he made the move to L.A. So he moves to L.A. His goal was to make enough money to bring his four kids from New Orleans out to the West Coast so they could have a better life. And he gets hired by, um, you know, I, I can't remember if it, which one of those labels it was, but they hire him as sort of an A&R man and a contractor. So he's in charge of putting together musicians. And he, he connects not only with his his friends from New Orleans, some of who come out, but, but with some other folks like Plaz Johnson, the famous uh, sax player, um, who was on the L.A. scene, who I worked a few gigs with over the years, who was just a great, also really part of that whole rhythm and blues, uh, early rock and roll scene of the, of the 1950s. So um, let's take a listen now to a couple of the tunes that Earl did during this time period when he was working in L.A., bringing his skills to the rock and roll scene. And he worked with, um, you know, uh, Roll With Me Henry, Etta James is, is one famous example. But I'm going to play a couple examples that maybe show off the different aspects of Earl's playing, some of which we started to talk about last week. Uh, and of course, by now, the style that he pioneered in, in what we talked about in the previous session is becoming the standard because everyone's hearing it, everyone's being influenced by it, and what Earl did on some of those records, everybody's doing. So he's doing his Earl thing. So the first record we're going to listen to is from 1957. And of course, he was traversing quite a lot between New Orleans and L.A. in that year. Uh, doing a lot of work in both places. Um, but this tune we're going to check out is called Little Bitty Pretty One by Thurston Harris. And um, most of these tunes I'm going to play for you guys have, are, are just, they've been around 
and been such a part of the collective consciousness for so long that even if you maybe don't recognize the title, you're probably going to recognize the song or heard something about it or, you know, have just heard it around. It's, it's, it's those type of tunes that have just always been with us, it seems, sort of like Motown tunes or, uh, you know, other sort of um, what they call, you know, golden oldies, Fats Domino, you know, these, these type of early rock and roll tunes of particularly the 50s and 60s. They just have this character to them. Uh, it's, a, it's, it's a little bit nostalgic. It's a little bit innocent. You know, rock was not yet as heavy and uh, thunderous as it would become sort of in the post-Beatles era. Uh, there's still, in, in our mind anyway, a certain innocence to it. Although, again, at this time, this was controversial music. And I'm pretty sure I talked about this when I did the deconstruction of Bill Haley's Rock Around the Clock, just how controversial it was, even though it feels like it's kind of Almost a goof, you know, a nostalgic goof in a way. All right, so here we go. Uh, Little Bitty Pretty One, Thurston Harris, 1957. noticed at the um at the beginning of the tune earl's bass drum patterns really hit ba-boom 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 you know those those little kind of bass drum things you didn't hear very often on recordings you know maybe somewhere in a bebop recording but not in a pop or rock recording this was a very new kind of a way to play a pattern right um so let's check out now another tune uh so what i should say is that you know Earl now begins playing on more and more iconic records. And of course, the Little Richard stuff, Fats Domino stuff is iconic, but he's now starting to play on hits that, that become timeless smashes. And of course, this is, this is one. Um, and it's, it's the song Donna by Richie Valens. Now, Richie Valens um, is known for quite a few things, probably most many of you know. Um, you know, he really was the first quote-unquote Latino rock star. I think his his name originally was, his last name was Valenzuela, and they they changed it to Valens, of course, to uh, anglicize it so, so the white folk could get on board. But, um, you know, his biggest hit is La Bamba, which was sung in Spanish. It's an old Spanish-language folk song. I think it's a Mexican folk song that... Um, he updated and made into a rock and roll hit. And what, what, you, what you probably, in thinking back and looking back, so much of rock and roll was the idea of taking something that already existed and rock, you know, putting it to a rock beat, putting it in a rock setting with guitars or honking saxophones or big booming drums. And La Bamba's certainly the case. You know, take a, a folk song and update it. And it, you know, becomes a huge hit. Richie Valens becomes a huge rock star, uh, and uh, uh, and so um, of course, sadly, uh, you know he has he has a, a few hits, including the one we're going to hear, Donna, which is more of a ballad. And then uh, the following year, this is recorded fifty eight, fifty nine. He dies in the famous plane cla- plane crash with um, Buddy Holly and the Big Bopper. But um, this this tune, Donna, is is just a classic fifties love song. It's a twelve eight. It's one of those that you would slow dance to your girl with or your guy, and uh, very romantic, very sappy. But again, it's that sort of naivete, the innocence of the teenager, and you really get that in in this vibe. So uh, here it is, Richie Valens, O'Donna, or or Donna, um, Earl Palmer, laying down his patented 12-8 group. Very cool, very cool. So Earl is now um, moving on. He, he had to actually, after about a year and a half, leave at Aladdin Records, which is where he was an A&R guy. And, you know, where, where he had been hired to be a full-time employee, session man, you know, work with the label. And he's, he's getting so um, popular now on sessions that he's moving on to more mainstream stuff. And one great story about that is... Um, Shelly Mann, the legendary L.A. jazz drummer who had, been, who had played with Woody Herman back in the big band era and then in the first glory years of the L.A. record business, which was really post-World War II. Um, 
you know, when when uh, session players and you know started doing movie soundtracks in California, and the whole scene evolved. Um, Shelly Mann was the guy. He was the man. Shelly Mann was the man, and he he was probably one of the most important session drummers uh, in in Los Angeles, and and that was the case uh, all through the sixties and seventies. But he had met Earl on one of Earl's first trips out west and was very impressed by him. So when Earl moved to California, Shelly Mann really opened a lot of doors for him, which again was a big deal to do for an African American drummer. Uh, in the 1950s. And Earl was always very grateful to Shelley. In fact, he was so grateful that he named his first, his daughter, once he and Susan uh, were able to actually get married, uh, they had two children and, and, and he named his daughter Shelley after Shelley Mann. So this tune is Willie and the Hand Jive. And again, some of you probably will recognize this song. It's a tune that had a dance that went with it and was a, a big, huge hit. It was covered um, by uh, some very famous folks. Eric Clapton had a, had a big hit with it in the 1970s, and, um, and a lot of people have done it. It's got a Bo Diddley beat going on to it, so it has that, again, classic 1950s thing. Bo Diddley's famous tune, Bo Diddley, that used that beat was only uh, from two or three years earlier. And now this is for Capitol Records, which was a much bigger label. Capitol was one of the biggest labels on the West Coast, one of the most exciting labels at that time. And uh, they were cutting a lot of rock and roll and crossover stuff and really aiming it now towards the white community. So R&B at this point is evolving so much that it really has turned into rock and roll and it's really gone from being um, an exclusive sort of property of African-American musicians and listeners and is now um, being heard by everybody. And of course, the name rock and roll very sort of quickly supplants the name R&B, the term R&B, which um, then goes on to mean other things. And I should mention again that the term R&B is like rhythm and blues, is like an umbrella term for any kind of popular African-American music. So what R&B meant in the 1950s is different than what R&B meant in the 60s, you know, which would have been, you know, maybe Motown uh, or James Brown music. Um or Ray Charles, uh, different than it would have meant in the 70s, which would have been Earth, Wind, and Fire, and the Spinners, and, you know, uh, uh, and then the 80s, you know, and, and with the advent of rap and hip-hop, all of that stuff falls under the, the, the banner of R&B. So today, R&B means something very distinctively different than what it meant back in the day. And just like you have rock and roll and, say, early rock or classic rock, you know, you've got classic R&B, and that's really what I refer to when I'm talking about R&B. So anyway, here it is, Willie and the Hand Jive, uh, Johnny Otis show with Earl Palmer on drums. It is a super funky, laid-back groove. Dig it. that groove i love that tune uh to me that is just totally classic and and um it really captures the essence of of r&b and and what earl palmer is capable of doing behind a drum set which is giving it just that ridiculously greasy pocket you know but yet right in there time wise right in there super professional you know um, i mean that was that was the charm you know he was he he brought all that stuff together he had he was a a trained drummer. He had excellent, super professional skills in the studio, meaning he could play this track the same way, take after take, lay down with incredible consistency, incredible time, incredible feel, great decision making, you know, all under the the super high powered um, uh, analytical gaze of the microphones, you know, and, and for those of us that have spent time in the studio working with microphones, especially in those days when you didn't have the luxury of take after take, they maybe did one or two or three takes of these things uh, because multi-track recording, you, you couldn't just, well, let's, let's create another track and we'll hang on to that one or let's put it to the click so you always knew where the time was. You couldn't just cut things in and out. It was much more difficult. So, you know, that even makes Earl Palmer's skill set that much more impressive because he was really one of the first generation of the modern guys to be able to 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 handle it at that level and and and, in, and invent within the world of rock and roll. 
and still give it just feel beyond days. He wasn't just a automaton, you know, he, he, he put so much groove into it. Um, so the next tune we're going to look at is uh, one more from the 1950s. Um, and this one is by Eddie Cochran. Um, Eddie Cochran was part of the, one of the guys, you know, along with Bo Diddley and Chuck Berry, who in the 50s really made rock and roll a guitar culture, a guitar-driven music, a music that focused on the electric guitar. And, you know, there had been various guitar heroes before that, and certainly many, many more after that. But Eddie Cochran was one of those guys that really helped it turn the corner. And he had that cool leather jacket look, that pompadour look. Uh, I played, you know, for two years in the Brian Setzer Orchestra. And if you look at Brian Setzer, you're looking at a guy that worshipped Eddie Cochran and does to this day. There's over by on the side of the stage where Brian sets up his guitars and where he, you know, tunes up and whatever and goes when he has a break off stage. It's a little area, the Brian zone or whatever. Uh, there's a picture of Eddie Cochran there. And, um, you know, he, Eddie Cochran, I don't think ever was far from, from Brian's mind. But um, the tune we're going to hear, of course, Eddie Cochran was most famous for the song Summertime Blues, which is kind of one of those teenage, uh, you know, gee, man, I got to go to work this summer. I just want to hang out with my friends. You know, one of those kind of 50s tunes that that looked at the plight of the teenager. Uh, and, you know, he's he's got the blues in summertime because all he wants to do is have fun and he's got to get a job and he's got to do this and he's got to do that and everyone's looking down on him. And, and that's cool. You know, Chuck Berry wrote songs like that and, um, you know, the song Blue Suede Shoes is, is, has that kind of spirit to it. Don't step on my cool shoes, man. Um, but... What Eddie Cochran brought was this mean, kind of distorted, tough kind of thing to it. And this song that we're going to check out right now really exemplifies that. And of course, Earl, being one of the toughest <laughs> cats, you know, was the perfect guy to play this in the studio. Um, and uh, so this song is called Something Else. And 1959, now we're really moving out of the 50s and heading into the 60s. Um, this is, uh, I just, this is probably my favorite Eddie Cochran song. And I just love the way the guitar sounds, the way the drums sound there really like figuring it out now with the production, really emphasizing those aspects of, of the guitar and the, the toughness of rock and roll. So check it out. Eddie Cochran, something else, 1959, Earl Palmer. Oh, look at that. Here she comes. I should mention that Eddie Cochran, you were talking about his influences, and I, I mentioned Brian Setzer, but uh, Summertime Blues, you know, which I which I mentioned before we heard the tune, uh, was such a meant so much to so many young people who were listening to it at the time that um, two sort of important bands of the '60s covered it: uh, Blue Cheer, who many people sort of think are the first sort of heavy metal band because their sound was very, very heavy. I don't know if I would agree with that, and I don't know if there really is an answer to that. But they certainly went for a very distorted sound. They did Summertime Blues, and of course, The Who. Uh, and when I joined my very first rock band when I was about 12 years old in 1978, um, that was one of the first tunes we did, Purple Haze and Summertime Blues. And so, uh, you know, you can see the influence just lasted and lasted and, and lasted. Um, so Eddie Cochran and what a great, amazing fifties rock, rock and roll artist and really paving the way for what we would, you know, what we would begin to understand as rock and roll. And of course, Eddie Cochran also really influenced the Beatles. Um, you know, the Beatles were right in there growing up during this time period in 1957, 58, 59, they were impressionable teens. And, uh, this is what they were into in the, the first, you know, band that they had the quarry men was a was a skiffle band which then turned into a greaser band essentially and you know they were influenced by by all these different things that were going on at this time so um some of the other really impactful artists from the 1950s that earl palmer recorded with uh ricky nelson who of course became a teen idol from a television show ozzy and harriet uh which was a big tv show back in the 50s kind of an all-american family and these are the, the thing you know it was a sitcom but uh, Ricky was the good-looking teenage son, so he became uh, a big star in his own right, and Earl played on his big records. And, you know, he did... Ricky Nelson 
had a version of I'm Walking, which we talked about last week, famous Fats Domino song. Again, in the 50s, this happened a lot. African-American artists would come up with a great song with a great feel and a great vibe. And then a white artist would, would remake that tune or cover that tune and have a much bigger hit with it. So, um, you know, that, that was always a, uh, a sticking point. But as a sideman, Earl Palmer just went along, you know, for the ride. And he actually played on Ricky Nelson's giant hit version of it, as well as the original Fats Domino version. So, um, you know, he was breaking racial barriers because they, even if the face was white, they wanted the guy that had the groove. Um, Sam Cooke, you know, another artist, now African-American artist that, that Earl Palmer played on a lot of his tunes. Um, one more tune I'm going to mention is Rock and Robin. Um, you know, Tweedledee. And of course, the original version was from the 50s, a guy named Bobby Day. But the big version that I remember that was, a, I think, a much bigger hit was the, the Jackson 5. Little little Michael Jackson in the early 70s uh, doing Rock and Robin. So um, so there you go. And let's, let's go now to the 1960s. Uh, let's transition. Um, a new era is kind of dawning. And I, I do want to start our discussion of Earl in the 1960s with, um, this, uh, a a different vibe now, a jazz song, because we haven't really, we've talked about Earl as an important rock drummer, but last week or in the last session, I, I really didn't stress in my opinion enough about his depth as a, a musician, as, as a, as a musician overall. Um, he, as I mentioned, had gone to music school and he could read music, which was a very important skill if you wanted to make it as a session musician anywhere, but particularly in Los Angeles, because L.A. has always been known as the, the town of musicians who can read fly shit. And, you know, these guys would just pump this stuff out. And, you know, obviously later on, when we start talking about the wrecking crew and that sort of thing, um, that that is uh, an important element to that. Those guys were all great readers. But Earl also was a great jazz drummer. And, you know, when I first met him, like I said, he was playing with a jazz trio and he always told me that, you know, he was a jazz drummer. He wanted, he wanted people to know that even though his primary association is with rock and roll, that he was a jazz drummer and that rock comes from jazz, that it took a jazz drummer, you know, to, to sort of make those changes and differentiate, you know, what came before. And like I said, although he wasn't as well known for his jazz stuff, he did a lot of jazz stuff. He played with uh, um, played with uh, Ray Charles. He played with uh, Sarah Vaughan and uh, um, Frank Sinatra. You know, he's on a lot of these uh, recordings, these jazz recordings. I wouldn't say he was a heavy bebopper, but he could swing hard and he could give it that right feel. So we're going to hear that feel right now. This is a 1960, 1960 recording by Julie London. And the tune is called The Thrill is Gone. And this is not the B.B. King Thrill is Gone, which is a blues tune. This is an older standard from the 1930s called the same title, The Thrill is Gone. But um, check out how uh, sensitive and beautifully Earl plays this little segment uh, where it sort of kicks kicks up a notch, the tune does. And, um, you know, you would never know that this is the guy that was inventing rock and roll when you hear this tune. And of course, if you don't know about Julie London, uh, you need to get hip because she was about the hottest, sexiest mama, uh, <laughs> red hot mama on the uh, kind of on the, uh, the the scene in the in the fifties and sixties. Uh, many of you who are of my generation grew up listening or watching, sorry, watching the TV show Emergency and Emergency One, and she played the chief nurse at the hospital, Dixie McCall. Uh, but, you know, that was already in the 70s. In the in the 50s and 60s, she was a real sex kitten. She had a huge hit with Crimea River, and she was beautiful. You can hear the sultry tone of her voice. It's really fantastic the way the whole recording comes together. So, um, Julie London, 1960, The Thrill is Gone. All right. 
a taste of Julie London, and you should definitely check out more because she's she had it all going on. Let's just put it that way. Um, so let's move forward one more year now to 1961, and now Earl is still doing stuff with um, a variety of. Uh, record labels, small R&B and rock and roll labels. Um, and uh, he, he puts out a couple of drum records, uh, solo drum records featuring the drums. Now, this is a really interesting period that I refer to as the golden age of rock instrumentals. And it sort of really goes, it's a holdover from the big band era when most of the music was instrumental and the vocals where you know the vocalists were, were folks that got up and sang a couple of tunes and then sat back down again so the band could keep cooking. And if you've seen my Century Project DVD, I talk all about this period and how the emphasis in popular music really shifted from instrumentalists to vocalists after you know somewhere in the in the early 40s there were a number of things that contributed to that and since then the focus of pop music rock music you know vo- vocally oriented popular music ha- the focus has been on the vocalist and sorry instrumentalist we ended up getting the the shaft as it were but earl and um plaz johnson and a few of the other guys that were musicians at these um independent labels uh, for for rock and roll and rhythm and blues, we're sitting around one day around this time, going, "How can we make some extra money?" You know, we're we're being paid as sidemen, but they see who's making the big bucks. The artist is making the big bucks. Record labels are making the big bucks. The sidemen, eh, not so much. And of course, as I mentioned last in the last session, totally uncredited. So um, they they decide. Well, sometimes we get some extra studio time left over. Let's take advantage of that and let's make our own music. Let's make some instrumentals. So as I said, the the golden age of rock instrumentals was a period from, you know, really the end of the forties, but obviously rock instrumentals, um, that they were, there were still, you know, tequila is a prime example of a a, a classic rock instrumental. There's only one word in the song, tequila, right? And the rest of the tune is, is a cool riff, sax riff. So, um, you know, they must have seen that, that, that some of these songs had been popular. Um, you know, all of Dick Dale, for example. Dick Dale never sang a note, but Dick Dale had his hits, Miserloo and some of his other tunes. They were all instrumentals. And there's actually a really great book called The Golden Age of Rock Instrumentals that I read on this very subject. Uh, it's probably out of print. I think it's out of print, but go try to find it on Amazon if you're interested in this stuff. It's a really great read and fun and very interesting and digs into this period. Um, you know, and by the time we get to, you know, the Beatles, the rock instrumental starts to fade away, uh, although there were still plenty of them uh, on the radio in the 60s and 70s. For, for example, Focus, Hocus Pocus, um, if you guys remember that, the, the yodeling Dutchman, which I, I just posted a, that um, a cool video of that on my Daniel Glass drummer author educator page. Um, I remember the fifth of Beethoven, the disco version, right? So they instrumentals kept popping their heads up. Anyway, so these Earl and the rest of the sidemen decide that they're going to make an instrumental. And in 1961, um, sorry, I take that back. We're not up there yet. That's coming. Uh, we're still on Drumsville, which, which was Earl's, um, solo record. He made a solo record for Liberty Records. And it it it's it's a cool little record. He does like a medley of his New Orleans tunes. He does some popular songs of the day. And he also does this particular tune, which is a cover of the song One Mint Julep, which was uh, kind of a, a, a rock and roll hit. Um, and it's about how this guy has one mint julep and then his whole life goes awry. You know, he makes a lot of bad decisions because he had one mint julep. So, the next thing we're going to hear real quick is um, is Earl's version of One Minute Julep, which opens up the record Drumsville on Liberty. This is the record that I had mentioned uh, that uh, that when Earl came to my gig uh, in the last couple of years of his life in the mid early two thousands, uh, he um, I had that record and he signed it for me. So um, what I want you to notice is the incredible drumming on this record because obviously a drum instrumental record featuring a drummer. Uh, you're going to get some great drumming. And this tune really, the opening fills are just happening. And then there are these little breaks that happen, and we'll try to catch some of that. But you can hear just how creative, tight, precise, and excellent his playing is on this tune. So this is One Mint Julep. (laughs) 
So to continue in this vein of instrumental rock, um, around this same time, and I did, I've sort of started this story a bit earlier, but Earl and some of his fellow studio musicians got the idea to use the extra studio time that they had that wasn't, you know, specific, um, they would sometimes finish the session early to start to record some things. And rather than try to write new songs or to license existing songs, which would be expensive, they said, well, why don't we go back and, and get some earlier tunes that might be in the public domain? Actually, the first one they got was Glenn Miller's In the Mood. Now, that wasn't in the public domain, but it was such a big hit. And Earl tells this really cool story that, you know, they would, they were always getting these requests from white Listeners, because of course, in the mood, Glenn Miller, it was the most popular song of the entire big band era, you know, saying, Hey, can you guys do in the mood? So they thought, well, you know, if the parents love in the mood that had the parents that had grown up in the 1930s in the war era, um, you know, if they loved it so much, now their kids are coming of age. Let's do a rock and roll version of in the mood. So they did just that. And, um, Earl arranged the tune. So another skill set. And they cut it under the title of the Ernie Fields Orchestra. And lo and behold, in 1960, it went to number four on the pop charts on the, uh, across the country. And they, they, uh, that was the Ernie Fields Orchestra. But then they gave themselves this goofy name called B. Bumble and the Stingers. Silly name, but guess what? Rock was kind of silly at, you know, to some degree at that point, it was very teenage oriented. So B Bumble and the Stingers, same guys as the Ernie Fields Orchestra, now put out this record, um, a, a take on Rimsky Korsakoff's Flight of the Bumblebee. Right? We all know that. Classical music. Again, now classical music, because it's in the public domain, they don't have to pay um, for the rights to use it or to record it. So that does well. So then in 1962, they record um, what they called Nut Rocker, which is a take on the Nutcracker. And, you know, from the dun, 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 dun. And they record this version, the Nutcracker. And that's what we're actually going to listen to because I really like the drumming on it. It's great rock and roll drumming from the 19, now 1960s, much better fidelity. Uh, and that managed to go number 23 on the pop charts in the U.S. and all the way to number one in the U.K. So uh, here it is from 1962, Be Bumble and the Stingers, Nut Rocker with Earl Palmer laying it down. As we move farther into the 1960s, we're now going to really kind of dig into a tune that Earl played on um, that has a very iconic 60s sound. We're going to we're going to explore a variety of iconic 60s sounds. So this is the Lonely Bull by Herb Alpert and the Tijuana Brass, and of course that Herb Alpert sound. Um, you know, Herb Alpert was the A of A&M Records. He and Jerry Moss started this record company together. It ended up becoming one of the most important and successful record companies of the 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s, I guess. It still was going then. Um, but, you know, they were, they, were, they were big. And Herb Alpert, of course, started as an artist. He was a trumpet player. So his songs uh, have a trumpet, uh, trumpet kind of... Um, you know, vibe to them. And the Tijuana Brass is had this sort of mariachi sound to it. It was kind of cool Mexican rock and roll, I guess you could say. And, and it was a popular sound, kind of had this uh, breezy, tropical sound. You know, Mexico was still sort of this glamorous place you'd go off to for these exotic vacations and whatnot back then. So it, uh, it has a vibe and a very 60s vibe that was really all about Herb Alpert. So now Earl Palmer is doing these big sessions with these major artists on these major labels and fitting in everywhere. And this sort of has a kind of a cool Latin sort of cha-cha-esque beat, I guess you could say. Uh, so here's the Lonely Bull, Herb Alpert, and the Tijuana Brass.
Another iconic sound of the 60s is, of course, you know, quote-unquote surf music. And we think of the Beach Boys as sort of the most iconic um, example of that. Southern California, fun in the sun, teens getting on a surfboard. There was a huge, really starting around the late 50s and into the 60s, surfing became, you know, white America, white teen America got hip to surfing. That was really the first time they did. There was a movie that came out, I think in the early 60s called The Endless Summer, which was this guy's journey where he just traveled all over uh, the world going to cool surf spots. And man, between that and the Beach Boys and Dick Dale, you know, people got really into it. And people like Dick Dale were from Southern California. It's interesting because the Beach Boys never really surfed at all, but they capitalized on the idea of you know the beach, obviously in their name. I think Dennis Wilson, who was the the, the sort of drummer, uh, you know, he was the one of the the Wilson, the three Wilson brothers, uh, Brian, Dennis, and uh, uh, Carl. He he was the only one that was really into surfing. But somebody like Dick Dale, who was a guitar hero of this period, was was actually a surfer and actually embodied the the surfing lifestyle. And and a lot of this stuff started in those beach communities like uh, Redondo Beach and uh, Manhattan Beach and Malibu and Santa Monica. You know. All up and down the Southern California coast. So, um, of course, one of the biggest sort of Beach Boy offshoots of the 1960s was Jan and Dean. They had several big hits, Surf City being one of them. Uh, but this was their other, you know, little old lady from Pasadena. It was kind of a funny, goofy song. But this one um, I like a lot, Dead Man's Curve. It's very serious and it's about driving your hot rod too fast and crashing, which of course exactly what ended up happening to Jan Berry from Jan and Dean. And he was in a, 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 a very serious uh, car wreck that pretty much sidelined the band. Now, what's really incredible about this particular track that we're going to hear is that there were actually two drummers on this track. And I did not know this for the longest time until um, I edited the, the Earl Palmer interview for the Roots of Rock drumming book that I did with Steve Smith. And what he talks about is that on some of these tracks... Um, especially with the wrecking crew, which is what we're going to talk about after the, after we hear the tune, but, uh, Earl and Hal played together. It wasn't very often, but it was something they wanted to try. They wanted to get sort of the big sound of two drummers, but make it sound still like it was one drummer. And so this section of, um, the song we're going to listen to surf city by Jan and Dean is, uh, see if you can hear it. It's tough to hear. And it only sort of happens at certain points, but at certain points it does sound like sort of their two guys playing. And they did such a great job of playing together uh, that it's it's really hard to tell. It wasn't as if they were both playing the entire track. They sort of divided up um, the, the division of labor. And some guys were, you know, one guy would be playing the beat and then they'd play together for certain things or one guy would be filling. So I don't know exactly the details. I can't point it out. But just take a close listen and see if you can hear it. All right, so we have Earl Palmer and Hal Blaine playing on... Uh, uh, Dead Man's Curve. I might have said Surf City earlier. Dead Man's Curve by Jan and Dean. It's sort of a, a dark minor key kind of, a, you know, a dire warning to you kids. Don't don't go out. Don't drive too fast on Dead Man's Curve. All right, here we go. So that was 1964, uh, Jan and Dean. We're now deep into the 60s. A lot of these iconic sounds were still. The Beatles have, are just about to show up. So, you know, we're, we're, things are just about to get a lot heavier in the, in, in the recording world. The Beatles, of course, changed everything um, with when they, when they showed up on the scene. And not only as singer-songwriters, as, as great instrumentalists, as great performers, as, as a boy band with, you know, good looks and charm, but... Um, but they, they, you know, they, as, as the 60s wove on, they ended up revolutionizing what, what one could do in a recording studio, and that changed things for everybody. But uh, we're not talking about the Beatles this time around, although I'm, I'm dinkering with doing a Ringo show, um, although it's a, you know, it's a, there's a lot to be said about Ringo, and so, amazingly to this day, he's still very, he's considered very controversial as far as people thinking he's the greatest drummer ever and other people thinking he was like a joke and the luckiest guy ever to, to get the gig with the Beatles. And it's everything in between. 
So, you know, Ringo is, uh, um, uh, it's a deep subject. There's a lot to talk about. So we'll maybe go into Ringo in, in a while here in a session down the line. But um, what we're talking about is the Wrecking Crew right now, because in the mid-60s, uh, with music changing, you know, the, the recording scene had to change as well. And when Earl showed up in Hollywood uh, and, 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 you know, started to do these sessions in the late 50s, uh, there, there were, you know, the, the, the standard scene in a recording studio were orchestral musicians and maybe some jazz musicians. And they were the ones doing the film scores. They were the ones doing the commercials. They were the ones doing, you know, the, um, the, the, the pop music um, and, and, and all of that kind of stuff. And you wore short sleeves and a tie to work and you were a respectable person. And of course, as rock and roll evolves, you know, the vibe of rock and roll was not that rock and roll was not about shirts and ties and well-groomed haircuts. Rock and roll was about rebellion from day one. And eventually the studio situation in Los Angeles could not deny where the music was going. And of course you had guys like Earl who came in and revolutionized the scene, but um, there was still a lot of resistance to that. And and these more traditional musicians, you know, uh, putting down the younger uh, guys that, that looked more like the, you know, progressively shaggy haired and more rebellious uh, rockers that were coming along in the 1960s. And so what evolved was this, group of players who um, were called the Wrecking Crew. And the reason they were called the Wrecking Crew is because, uh, you know, and Hal Blaine, who claims he made up the name the Wrecking Crew, uh, says that, you know, they kept walking into the studio and and these more traditional, classically oriented musicians would look at these young punks and go, oh, these guys are going to wreck the music business. So they're like, great, we'll just name ourselves the Wrecking Crew. So, of course, you know, it was a, a, a loose conglomeration um Hal Blaine was, you know, a, very well known as one of the primary drummers in the Wrecking Crew. Um, Glenn Campbell was a part of the Wrecking Crew. Uh, uh, Leon Russell was a part of the Wrecking Crew. They, of course, both went on to have huge careers uh, on on their own. But there was a lot of other Tommy Tedesco and um, uh, um, Ray Pullman and uh, Carol Kay. Uh, you know, the, it, it, there's it's it's a it's a it's a it wasn't just one band. It was a, a loose conglomeration, you know, maybe 20, 30 people. But in any case, Earl was certainly well into that scene and was sort of, you could say, a, a pioneer or a charting, chartering member of the Wrecking Crew and played on a lot of those recordings. Um, and so, you know, Jan and Dean, that was uh, uh, definitely the type of recording that the Wrecking Crew did. They also worked with, you know, the Mambas and the Papas and uh, the Beach Boys and the Monkees um, and a lot of other artists. Again, we, we mentioned this last week where it seemed like they were they had their own band and were making music themselves, but actually it was the Wrecking Crew that was really behind the scenes doing all the recording and, um, and doing it well. So I don't want to get too sidetracked from Earl Palmer, but I did sort of in the context of Jan and Dean and certainly these next couple of tunes talk about the wrecking crew or certainly this next tune the next tune is from 1966 so i'm jumping forward another couple of years um and it is river deep mountain high tina turner now river deep mountain high was the brainchild of producer phil specter who of course was affiliated with the great wall of sound and uh, a particular studio in la that he used to do a lot of the beach boy stuff and uh the ronettes and Tina Turner and the Righteous Brothers. He would he would uh, use the studio called Gold Star uh, that was in Hollywood, and uh, that's where a lot of the wall of stuff, wall of sound stuff, was created. And he really took advantage of the Wrecking Crew and would create these enormous productions with strings and uh, you know four guitar players and three keyboard players and an upright bass and an electric bass and these you know very elaborate uh, instrumentational setups with uh, incredible, uh, they called it the wall of sound because that's what it was. And, you know, this, this, the Phil Spector wall of sound is really the hallmark of the mid and late 60s uh, L.A. You know, it's very iconic what was going on at that time, just like Brian Wilson with the Beach Boys. And, you know, uh, this is very identifiably Los Angeles. So, again, Earl is right in there. He was the drummer on You've Lost That Love and Feeling. Uh, But the tune, like I said, we're going to hear is River Deep Mountain High, Tina Turner. And this is sort of a a bit of one of those coulda, shoulda, woulda, almost, you know, stories in in Hollywood, this this was going to be Tina's big breakout moment. Um, 
where she could really put her, you know, her stamp on, on the thing. And she had Phil, Phil Spector and the whole crew, wrecking crew behind her. Um, and unfortunately, and the song is an amazing song and the production's amazing. There's nothing that's not amazing about this. And for whatever reason, it never caught on with the public. It didn't sell well. And, you know, only in later years has it kind of come to be acknowledged as the true masterpiece that it was. So we're just obviously going to hear a snippet of it here. But um, River Deep, Mountain High, Earl Palmer as part of the Wall of Sound and the Wrecking Crew with Tina Turner, See just from the beginning of the show today to now how far music has come, how far what Earl Palmer is doing has come. And, you know, now rather than him sort of being out front with these very creative, very original ideas, he's a little more buried. He's definitely still doing his thing, but now it's he's part of much larger productions. And so he doesn't per se stand out, at least in these songs that I'm playing as much as he did, nor is he reinventing the wheel every time he's, you know, he's part of these amazing uh, productions. Uh, I'm going to play one more big budget production from 1966, um, which I just love. It's uh, uh, the Supremes and they're, they, this is one of their tunes, a lover's concerto. And um, it is again, based on a piece of classical music. Um, We can, uh, really hear, you know, when it's a black artist, sometimes it's a little bit more on the soulful side, but again, this is strings and intricate arrangements. It's a, it's a beautiful, lush piece of pop music. Um, and again, Earl fitting right in. So here it is, A Lover's Concerto by the Supremes, 1966. Very cool. I absolutely love that tune and that production. Um, Next, we go to some theme music now for what would be uh, in the movies. And, of course, Earl's busy schedule, this being L.A., this being Hollywood, in addition to doing hit records, he's doing a ton of film scores and uh, TV themes. And we'll talk a little bit more about those uh, later in the program. But um, one of the ones that I love is In the Heat of the Night, which uh, became a television show in the 70s, but it originally was a very controversial, hard-hitting movie about race relations in the 60s, uh, 1967 to be exact. And I just watched this movie on TCM, actually. It's it's a great movie if you get the chance to watch it. Sidney Poitier plays a black cop from Philadelphia who misses his bus in a town down in the deep south, I think in Mississippi, and I think it's Sparta, Mississippi. And Rod Steiger plays the kind of southern cracker sheriff, I guess, of this town. And there's a murder. And at first they suspect Sidney Poitier, you know, racial profiling. But um, once he reveals who he is, he turns out to be a super badass detective. And he runs circles around the local law enforcement, figuring out who who done it. And uh, begrudgingly gets the respect of Rod Steiger, who kind of realizes that he's got his head up his butt a little bit and that, you know, this guy's a class act, which, of course, Sidney Poitier always was in all of his movies. Um, but the what's cool is that the theme song for this movie was done by Ray Charles. So a very bluesy African-American artist. It puts you in the mood of the South, in the heat, in the summer, you know, the sweltering heat and the sweltering oppressiveness of that kind of Jim Crow society at that time. So um, in this, Earl gets to really get back to the roots and lays down some pretty sweet sounding uh, grooves. In the Heat of the Night, Ray Charles, 1967. In the heat of the night. Like a cold sweat creeping across my brow. Yeah. In the heat of the night. All right. 
I should take this opportunity to, uh, you know, there was a, a few other f- uh, film scores I'd like to mention. And again, I can't mention everything Earl Palmer did. It's just too much. His body of work is too, is too huge. But just to give you a sense um, of the kind of stuff that he did in Cold Blood, another Quincy Jones um, uh, film score, um, as, as was in The Heat of the Night, uh, even though that the theme song was Ray Charles, uh, Judgment at Nuremberg, It's a Mad, 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 Mad World, Cool Hand Luke. Um, you know, all of these were films, iconic films of the 60s that, that Earl played on the soundtrack to and film, doing the film scores. And I, I should mention again, there's a great interview with Earl in my book, uh, the book I co-edited with Steve Smith called uh, The Roots of Rock Drumming. A lot more about all this stuff. Very fascinating. There's an autobiography of Earl Palmer called uh, Backbeat Earl Palmer Story, written by Earl and Tony Sherman. Uh, and uh, there's, a, there's a great CD, uh, a compilation CD put out by Ace Records uh, called The World's Greatest Drummer, which has an amazing collection of songs that Earl played on, um, kind of all thrown together in one place. So I recommend you pick up all of those things and learn more about this, this great artist. So a um, couple more things we're going to do, two more actually. The first one is a real oddball thing that I just think is so cool and is a, a great story about Earl Palmer and, and just how great he was. And this is a, a movie, another movie called Zachariah. Now this is 1971. The hippie thing was was full on. Uh, people were making crazy hippie films all over the place and really experimenting. And this movie is a sort of a it's a terrible movie, uh, but it was trying to be kind of artsy and experimental and, and deal with the, the, you know, the hippie lifestyle or whatever. So there's a, a famous scene, and actually you can find this on YouTube. I'm going to put the link to this along with some of these other things I mentioned in the show notes page of this session. Um, and in this movie, Zachariah, there's a bunch of first of all it takes place in the old west so they're in the old west except that there's a a bunch of hippies playing like psychedelic acid rock on stage with electric instruments and a drum set so already it's like what is going on right and amazingly into this scene walks elvin jones i kid you not drummer of john coltrane fame one of the most legendary jazz bebop drummers and elvin is all dolled up in a like psychedelic cowboy outfit and he walks up to the drum set, kicks everybody off, plays a stellar Elvin Jones drum solo, and then pulls out a six-shooter and kills everybody in the place. Don't ask me. I never saw the whole movie of Zachariah. I don't think I ever will. But this scene is amazing and well worth looking up on YouTube. You can find it on YouTube. Now, what happened is that something got screwed up with the audio, and big pieces of Elvin's solo, you you could see him, but pieces of the solo disappeared. Audio, the audio. And they called Earl Palmer to go in and replace the audio. The only way he could do this is by watching what Elvin's hands were doing and replicating that. And from what I could tell, the the clip I'm going to play, and you should go watch the whole clip yourself, but the clip I'm going to play is, it sounds like parts of Elvin's thing kind of come in and out. And at times you can hear where there's two drummers and then, you know, one of them disappears, um, and, and it's just back to Elvin again. But what's amazing is how perfectly Earl Palmer copped Elvin Jones's vibe and his style on this solo, you know. And really, if you think about it, the guy who invented rock and roll and Elvin Jones are like two different universes away from each other. And yet one guy is able to kind of straddle all of these, uh, you know, job requirements and do whatever the job took, whatever it, whatever it took. And... Um, I had a similar experience, actually, myself. A few years ago, when I was still in L.A., actually, I had left L.A., but I was back in L.A., I got called to do two sound-alike tunes for uh, these Henry Mancini songs. Um, One of them was the Pink Panther theme, and the other one, God, the name escapes me right now, but it was used in the film Better Call Saul, or the, uh, the TV series Better Call Saul. And we were charged to do exact replicas of these songs so that... Uh, they could be used for film and television without having to pay, again, pay the publishing. Um, I'll try to see if I can remember that, but I can't remember the name of the second tune right now. Something like Bonsai Pipeline or something, but had a, I think a Japanese name. In any case, uh, I had to take down a Shelley Mann solo at the end of this tune, not the Pink Panther, although Shelley played on both. These were both Henry Mancini songs from the 60s, and I had to um, replicate that Shelley Mann solo that comes, he sort of riffs at the end of this tune. It was it was one of the most challenging things I did, come up with a Gretsch 
round badge kit that was exactly the same dimensions, the same sounds, so that it, you know, when we did our version of the recording, it would sound exactly like uh, the original version. So nobody would know the difference. And there's a scene, I think it's in the first season of Better Call Saul, um, where this this music is used. And um, I don't know. I couldn't tell if it was the one we did or the original. In any case, here is a few seconds of Earl Palmer uh, doubling Elvin Jones in Zachariah, 1971. <laughs> So we're going to finish this out with, um, appropriately, since we're talking about movies and TV, a TV theme song. It's, uh, you know, probably one of Earl's most famous accomplishments, you could say, maybe in popular culture. Um, but let me, before I get into that, let me just list, uh, this is a very short list, not nearly all, all of the stuff that he did in in the world of film and television, but uh, I Dream of Jeannie, The Flintstones, The Brady Bunch, The Partridge Family, MASH, The Odd Couple. Incredible, right? I mean... Each one of those, at least for those of us who grew up in the 60s and 70s and probably the 80s as well, you know those songs inside and out. You can sing those songs, you can hum those songs, and there was Earl on all of the ones I just mentioned in addition to many, many others. And he also, as the 60s moved into the 70s, recorded with, you know, incredible list, and this is just, again, just a few names, Neil Young, Randy Newman, Tom Waits, Bonnie Raitt, Tim Buckley, Little Feet, Barbara Streisand, and Elvis Costello. So, you know, his reach was so, so broad. Um, and uh, anyway, so this tune we're going to check out, the last tune we're listening to today, is the theme, of course, to Mission Impossible. Uh, very famous theme. Lalo Schifrin composed it. One of the things that makes it so unusual is that it's actually in 5-4 time. And, um, you know, I'm sure that Anybody who's seen the Tom Cruise movies, they resurrected the same the same music. I'm sure it was done in, in a different way. But this is the original of the Mission Impossible theme song with Earl Palmer at the helm. Here we go. last notes I want to mention, um, which I just find to be very amusing about Earl Palmer, is that, number one, um, one of the things he said was the hardest stuff for him to do was cartoon music. And I've heard many other drummers say that 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 is some of the hardest music to play because it's supposed to be zany, right? So, you know, when you check out the Flintstones, for example, um, you know, there's just stuff flying by. They try to cram all this stuff in in a very short period of time. And and, and and that was Earl as well, you know, cartoon music in addition to all these other things that we've talked about with the richness of, of his career. And of course, you know, as I mentioned last week, Earl's influence was just tremendous, especially in the earlier part of his career. And if you if you read the Roots of Rock Drumming book, there are interviews in there with a variety of characters, but uh, most particularly J.M. Van Eaton, who was the house drummer at Sun Records, played on two-thirds of everything done at Sun. He recorded with Jerry Lee Lewis, his most famous songs, Whole Lot of Shaking Going On, and and uh, um, uh, Great Balls of Fire. I'm trying to get JM to to grace us with a, an interview slash conversation on this, on this program, so we'll see what happens. And Jerry Allison uh, from Buddy Holly's band, and both of them were very, very, they started off playing Little, Little Richard and Fats Domino tunes, you know? And so the, the many, many drummers of early rock we're paying attention to those early Earl Palm Earl Palmer covers, uh, or not covers, but hit recordings. Uh, they may not have known who, who Earl was or what he was playing, that it was him playing, but they were certainly listening. And again, when he gets to California and does all the, all those other huge, you know, La Bamba type hits that, that, um, were, were just so influential. Eddie Cochran, like I already mentioned, huge influence on the Beatles. 
uh, and the other British invasion drummers. And then, you know, you have to think that Earl was also influential on people like Jim Keltner, who is also does, has a terrific interview in our roots of rock drumming book. Um, and he talks about, you know, coming to Earl, uh, coming to Los Angeles and hanging out in the corner at gold star as a young drummer, you know, and things, security wasn't so tight back then. So you could kind of sneak into some of these sessions. And, um, you know, Earl also ghosted on Sandy Nelson's records. Uh, Sandy Nelson, the famous teen rock drummer, he was in an auto accident and lost a leg. And uh, so, so the Wrecking Crew guys, you know, he, even though he was a drummer, uh, he didn't necessarily play on all of his, on all of his, his tunes, at least. And again, you know, I'm sure that Sandy might say differently, but um, Earl says he played on Sandy Nelson records. And, you know, it's a, it's, it's always a, an interesting conversation with the sidemen saying they played on a record and the original artist. And of course the biggest controversy of those all is, you know, this, the, you know, Bernard Purdy says that he played on certain Beatles records and I'm not even going to go near that controversy right now. Um, but it's, it's, it's always a controversial issue. For example, the British invasion band, the Dave Clark five, uh, you know, Dave Clark didn't play on any of the records yet. He was the band leader and he led from behind the drums, but it, no one ever mentioned that, you know, back in the day, only now are the guys that actually did play on the Dave Clark five records getting some kind of acknowledgement. So, um, I'll finish with a, uh, a, a great quote from Earl. And, uh, I love this, this quote. Um, and basically, Late in his career, I'm reading this off of his Wikipedia page, but it says, Late in his career, Earl Palmer appeared in a music video with the band Cracker, the song I Hate My Generation. So he's just playing on the video. So he's not actually playing. He's just, you know, playing along. Um, as, as the Addict- Addicted to Noise magazine or website tells the story, according to Cracker leader Dave Lowry, when Earl Palmer was asked if he would be able to play along with the songs, he gave Lowry a look and said... I invented this shit. <laughs> and guess what? He did. He inv- he literally invented this shit. Um, so I thank you for hanging with me and listening to the great music of Earl Palmer and his great contributions. I hope you learned a little bit more. Uh, it's a it's always a, a, a pleasure when I talk about Earl. I have very fond memories of the time I spent with him. And, uh, um, you know, he was a, an incredible guy and a very righteous and for real cat. And and we're very blessed that he was willing to share, while he was alive, he was willing to share so much about um, what he had done and what his his whole thing was about so that I I and others can not only use these techniques, but share uh, share them for, for future generations. So thanks so much for listening. We will see you next time on the Daniel Glass Show here on the Drummer's Resource Podcast. 